March 5th, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Nick Spitzer, Professor and Vice Chair of the Section of Neurobiology, and he's co-director of the Kavli Institute for Brain and Mind at UC San Diego, where he studies assembly and developmental differentiation of neuronal circuits. Thanks for being here, Nick. Thanks very much. Around the room, we have Charles Wilson. Hi. Or Charlie, sorry. Fidel. Hi. Santa Maria. <clears throat> Carlos Palladini. Hello. Gary Galfo. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Selma Karashi. So, Nick, typically when most of us uh, think about plasticity or experience-dependent plasticity in the nervous system, we think of circuit modification or um, development of new connections within populations of neurons. But your work highlights a new principle by which neurons can shift identity um, to enhance or diminish population output in response to some input. Could you tell our listeners a bit about uh, the experiments that led to this finding, just sort of in your own words and briefly? Yes. I started um, my career in neuroscience by a keen interest in the development of electrical excitability. I'm very impressed by Hodgkin and Huxley's important work identifying the way in which cells generate action potentials. And this quickly led us to the appreciation that at early stages of development, neurons generate action potentials that are long in duration and calcium dependent. That in turn led to the question, what could be the function of these peculiar forms of electrical excitability? And very quickly, we came to the point of observing with various experimental manipulations that changing activity could change the identity of the neurotransmitter that a neuron would express. So a motor neuron normally expressing acetylcholine could be made to express glutamate, uh, and a glutamatergic neuron could be made to express GABA. Um, and these were all experiments through rather artificial perturbations, the kind of perturbations that scientists love to carry out in their laboratories, but have very little relationship to the real world. Recently, we've been able to show that natural stimuli, the kind of stimuli that uh, any of us would experience in a normal life, uh, can also uh, be effective in changing the identity of transmitters in neurons in the brain. So this, I think, does move it to an interesting level, uh, a level of plasticity that have been previously unsuspected. So, but presumably not all cells are pluripotent in terms of their potential identity. Um, what do you think are the molecular mechanisms that uh, determine the boundaries over which populations can overlap? In That's a very interesting question, yes. Uh, the, the model that we're working with at the moment is one in which um, there are populations of neurons that, that um, uh, have activity-dependent transcription factors. Um, uh, transcription factors that can some way be influenced by this early form of electrical activity. And in quite recent work that we've just submitted for publication, we've uh, uh, brought uh, the rubber down to meet the road, as one might say here, um, looking at the way in which the calcium spikes produced in these embryonic neurons regulate the expression of the homeobox gene TLX3. And TLX3 uh, one can remember, is a gene shown by other groups to be a selector gene for the selection of glutamate over, over GABA. And uh, we were able to show that calcium spikes are upstream of, of TLX3. The calcium spikes lead to the phosphorylation of amino acids in the N-terminal domain of the uh, C-gen, that transcription factor. This then, uh, uh, this uh, phosphorylated version of C-gen then binds to a non-canonical Cre site, in the promoter of TLX3, and then regulates the choice of glutamate over GABA. 
So this is one example. We were looking for more, but this is uh, certainly an instance in which this this regulation is driven um, uh, by activity acting on a, on a transcription factor to regulate uh, a particular gene. Carlos, now, this is fascinating. So, um, is is there also a role for the uh, action potential per se? So, or or is this action potential just uh, kind of like a reporter in it? Due to an increase in calcium. Yeah. So could, could we say, for for example, record from a cell and and, and inject the current so that it just mimics the same type of waveform and, and actually change its its identity? Yes, we 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 can do that, Carlos, and we have done it actually. Uh, um, I think uh, you bring up an important question here. Does the uh, is it the action potential per se that's important, or is it really the elevation of intracellular calcium, which could be achieved by a variety of different methods? Right. Um, in uh, some earlier work, after we had shown that perturbations manipulating the calcium-dependent action potential uh, and changing calcium spikes could change neurotransmitters, uh, we uh, we wanted to uh, do this in vivo and and try to drive neurons at with different uh, frequencies of calcium spikes, and to do this. Uh, this was in early days, and we set up a very sort of uh, uh, Rube Goldberg uh, kind of apparatus uh, to uh, perfuse cultures uh, uh, with um, a culture medium that uh, could be switched by computer-controlled solenoid valves between a, a medium that contained uh, uh, no uh, calcium and, and low potassium chloride, and then for brief 20-second uh, periods, uh, the perfusion medium would be changed, and now there would be uh, high calcium and high potassium to depolarize the cells and open calcium channels allow calcium influx. And to make a long story short, what we found was that the different frequencies of these very artificially driven calcium transients uh, were were quite effective in changing the transmitters that the neurons made. Uh, so it does seem as though the action potential really is is a vehicle that is it's a it's a, it's a, a tool that the neuron uses to lead to an elevation of, of intracellular calcium. And I should probably add here that the, the calcium coming into the action potential is really the trigger on a much bigger gun, uh, and, and, and the bullet or cannonball in the gun here is the release of calcium from intracellular stores. So calcium comes in through the action potential, big release of calcium from intracellular stores, calcium goes up, uh, and, and depending on the pattern, uh, an interesting thing we might discuss, uh, different patterns of calcium then lead to the appearance of different neurotransmitters. Gary. So I have a question. It's a it's a temporal question. You mentioned that there may be uh, some transcription factors involved as uh, intermediate signaling molecules between electrical activity and the regulation of uh, uh, neurotransmitter um, uh, genes and proteins. So what is what is the time scale and um, uh, what kind of transcription factors do you think are recruited to to mediate? Uh, Acetylcholine receptor expression or right. GABA receptor expression right. and things right. like that. Time scale is is something that we haven't um, really come to grips with yet in a systematic way. But it was we were startled by the observation. This was um, an observation that David A. Dulcis made in the lab, looking at the um, activity dependent um, uh, natural stimulus, the, the light stimulus dependent uh, change in the numbers of uh, dopaminergic neurons, neurons making dopamine in the ventral suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus, again, in, in the model that we're studying here, the Xenopus uh, larva. And what Davide found was that a, a period of, of as brief as two hours uh, in the light 
stimulating through the retinal ganglion cells, these VSC neurons, uh, could change the level of uh, tyrosine hydroxylase transcripts uh, in the neurons that then went on to express the tyrosine hydroxylase uh, protein assessed immunocytochemically. Do you think it's a, the transcriptional, translational level? Because that's such a, a fast process. It is a fast process, but the, this was actually with a, with a very uh, uh, sensitive in situ hybridization protocol. Um, and uh, in the absence of the uh, light stimulation, we are not able to detect. Of course, there's always this issue of sensitivity of the method and whether or not they're there, but we're not detecting them. We're not able to detect these tyrosine hydroxylase transcripts, and then following the two hours, just this two-hour brief period of stimulation of the light, now exuberant detection of the transcripts uh, in these neurons. We were surprised that it was that fast. Um, and, and I think we, we interpret that to be an argument for the role of transcriptional regulation, not to exclude a, a translational regulation step or, or indeed post-translational post steps beyond that, um, but uh, quite a, a rapid uh, process. Remind me of the second part of your question, Gary. Um, the uh, oh, the various uh, downstream transcription factors. Downstream transcription factors. Well, yeah, there uh, uh, the Jun and Foss uh, factors have been uh, analyzed from many different points of view by a wonderful range of labs over the years, uh, and um, they are certainly good candidates. I should point out that there are many parts of that story that we don't yet. Uh, have a have a full understanding of. For example, we don't yet know what kinases lie between calcium spikes and the phosphorylation of, of the CGN transcription factor. And there are, there are a variety of, of CGN uh, kinases, uh, gen kinases, um, MAP kinases, of course, that, that could be involved there. Uh, the other part that we haven't really tackled yet is the way in which TLX3 expression then leads to the uh, appearance of glutamatergic at the expense of GABAergic neurons. That's another piece to be worked out. But in terms of where the rubber meets the road, where activity comes together on a genetic pathway, uh, we think that, that that we've got an insight there that's uh, that's a new one. Charlie? So I, I want to let my imagination uh, run free a little bit and, and hope for the best for this kind of thing. So uh, in your experiment, you've got a bunch of dopamine neurons, and there's some neurons that live around the dopamine neurons, and those neurons project to the same targets as do the dopamine neurons, but they have, normally have a different function. They release something other than dopamine, and presumably at different times, yes. I guess. Yes. So now um, the dopamine cells uh, recruit those, and those some of those become dopamine cells. And, um, and now they can help the dopamine cells do their function, which... Uh, you know, you can imagine maybe I'm short of dopamine cells. I'd like to do that and not have to make cells fresh from stem cells, but just take the ones that, that adult cells that are hanging around and transform them. And now, now what happens? Do they release dopamine and the thing they used to release? Do they release it at both the time that dopamine ought to be released and when the other one? Does dopamine get released by itself at one time and the other transmitted by itself at another time? The inputs that make them fire at those particular times, are they already there? Yes. Uh, those are the These are ter compelling questions, Charlie. As always, I would expect no less. The, um, and and uh, it's embarrassing to have to report this at this point. We don't know the answers to effectively all of those questions, but um, we are thinking about this problem in the same way. We are thinking about this 
group of neurons that surround the the canonically sort of native population of dopaminergic neurons. We're thinking of that population as a reserve pool that's waiting out in reserve, kind of ladies and gentlemen in waiting, waiting for the call. Uh, When the call comes, they then acquire the ability to make dopamine, and they're already poised to be uh, functionally useful because, as you pointed out, they already project to the appropriate targets. Uh, um, Of course... Uh, from work of, of mutual friends of all of us, we know that peptidergic and, and classical transmitters often require different patterns of action potentials to evoke their release, and so it's natural to think that very likely the neuropeptide Y, which is the, one of the uh, transmitters that's in this recruitable population that acquire, can acquire dopamine, the, the NPY neuropeptide Y requires one set of, of patterns of action potentials to be released, and then the dopamine requires another uh, a pattern of activity to be released. But there's a host of, of, of these fascinating questions here. One question might be, how are these reserve pools of neurons initially specified? We remember that the developing, developing nervous system shows an exuberant production of, of synapses that are then pruned back at very early stages of development. How does that pruning sculpt out uh, and leave behind not only the, the active pathway, but also this reserve pool that has this capability? How, coming back to your question, Gary, how does that reserve pool uh, acquire the particular activity-dependent transcription factors that will Im- imbue them with the capability to be recruited? Uh, how, how is that specified? Um, and, uh, and, 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 and a further question, how general is this process? So far... In, in our lab, we've identified this, this process uh, of uh, re- recruitability of uh, new uh, transmitters in, in neurons that didn't normally make them in, in the spinal cord, um, in the hypothalamus with the, this uh, ventral suprachiasmatic nucleus population, and also in, in another story that's not as far along but, but deals with the serotonergic neurons in the RAFE. There also, in the region around the RAFE, there seems to be a population of reserve pool neurons that can be recruited to become serotonergic given the appropriate level of excitation. Um, and so it's, it's fun to think that this might be a, uh, a rather general principle. Again, I, I want to emphasize that we're far from wanting to make that claim, but, but this might be a general principle of organization of the, of the nervous system that in, in many parts of the nervous system. There are these reserve pools of neurons waiting to be called up and called into action upon receipt of the appropriate uh, stimulus. Uh, so um, we've got a lot of uh, fun experiments on, on the short list here to try to, to do. One of the things that we l- dearly love to do is to ask about the extent to which this kind of a process occurs in the more mature nervous system. And here we are sitting around having this interesting discussion and talking about these kinds of issues. Um, could it be the case that even as we are uh, going through life and engaging our sensory uh, input in various ways, thinking various thoughts, that this is actually leading to uh, the heretical thought, I think, uh, that the transmitter complement in different neurons in my brain is changing uh, as we speak. Uh, certainly as graduate students, we're all taught that, you know, motor neurons are cholinergic and, you know, sensory neurons are glutamatergic or whatever. Uh, and it's handed down, as, you know, on the basis of experiments that looked at endpoints, at terminal stages of differentiation, and usually sampled at a particular point in time and went for the majority mean population. And um, maybe there's more to this. Uh, That's interesting, because actually a couple of weeks ago we talked about neurodegenerative disorders, and you you bring up the point of does this happen in a mature 
nervous system. So, and, and especially in the case of dopaminergic neurons, which you studied, uh, there's Parkinson's disease. So is, is this, do you think then the case that it, this is where even the reserve pool has been depleted? Carlos, that's a fascinating question. And, and Davide and I have thought about that and, and with this wonderful opportunity that we just learned about yesterday, the, the potential for submitting a challenge grant uh, to deal with the great stimulus package of 2009, um, uh, we're thinking maybe we'll take a shot and see what we could do here. But um, certainly, and this was implicit, I think, in one of your questions, Charlie, um, implicit here is the idea that in something like Parkinson's, uh, one is losing a population of dopaminergic neurons. And I'm forgetting my neuroanatomy here, but I, I'm remembering at least to the extent that there are populations of uh, GABAergic non-dopaminergic neurons in the immediate vicinity uh, that in principle might be recruited uh, to acquire the dopaminergic phenotype. Uh, and and if, if that scenario has some merit, then could one perhaps in a mouse, perhaps, uh, try to devise a way to, uh, just as a proof of principle, directly electrically stimulate that population of GABAergic neurons and see if they could be recruited to become dopaminergic. Uh, if, if that were to work, then one would want to back off a little bit and try to identify some sort of natural stimulation process to try to drive the cells without an invasive uh, direct electrical stimulation. But I think, I think something like that would be a very interesting avenue to pursue, to try to um, get at a potentially useful therapeutic approach to something as devastating as, as Parkinson's. It is, it is interesting um, that the um, uh, changes in the dopaminergic neuron population that we see in this amphibian model, this Oedipus model, um, uh, uh, with changes in ambient illumination, parallel a set of observations, clinical populations in, in, in human beings, uh, uh, that uh, describe an entity referred to as seasonal affective disorder, SAD, seasonal affective <clears throat> disorder. This is a problem for our species at high latitudes where in the wintertime the nights are unbearably long. And it's a very common uh, observation that in these populations human beings get very seriously clinically depressed. And um, initially pharmacological therapy was thought to be the bees knees kind of treatment for this uh, problem. More recently, it's been appreciated that phototherapy is actually as or even more effective than pharmacological therapy, fewer side effects, uh, higher success rate. Um, and so we've wondered whether in a, in a mammalian model, if we were to move from frogs to mice, uh, whether one might see changes in the size of dopaminergic nuclei, and in particular the ventral suprachiasmatic nucleus, uh, um, with changes in ambient illumination. Um, and, uh, and then, then perhaps one could persuade some of one's clinical friends to use PET scanning, positron emission tomography, to look in, in human patients and ask whether uh, between uh, depressed and, and recovered patients there are changes in the, in the size of their dopaminergic nuclei. So I think there are a number of ways to take th these kinds of experiments to ask about issues that are related to, um, to various uh, disorders of the nervous system. So kind of um, going off on uh, Carlos's question uh, with respect to regenerative medicine. Mm. So in the nervous, uh, in the mature nervous system, there's a, a few uh, niches where you have uh, stem cells. Yes. And clearly to stimulate these neural stem cells down a particular neural pathway, there's got to be some perhaps 
external or environmental influence. So most of your studies have looked at existing neuronal pools of neurons, which are post-mitotic, perhaps being recruited. Can electrical activity drive a progenitor, a stem cell, down a differentiation pathway, bypassing some of the molecules that are required by, by stem cells to, to differentiate? Very interesting. Uh, very interesting, Gary. The, uh, certainly it is the case uh, that the uh, different phases of development of, of um, uh, stem cells in adults uh, mirror and, and parallel the phases of development of newborn neurons at early stages of development. So, for example, if one thinks about proliferation and migration and differentiation and that involving axon pathfinding and target recognition and transmitter specification, that, that litany of, of different events uh, have, have all been shown to varying extents in various ways by various labs to be uh, regulated by activity uh, in the embryonic nervous system. And then if you turn to the same set of issues, but now in uh, new neurons uh, developing in the adult, adult neurogenesis, again, you find that activity is involved in regulating these processes. So it, it appears as though activity, even in the adult, can uh, and, and does play a role in this in the specification of these different stages of development. Now, whether it can bypass, you know, as you were suggesting, the roles of different genes is a really intriguing question. My, my hypothesis would be that uh, the, 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 maybe there's some sharing of the genes that are expressed at early stages of development in embryonic systems and the genes that are expressed during adult neurogenesis, and that activity, the genes are coming together in a kind of partnership. Uh, uh, rather than a uh, than a takeover function, if we could use that metaphor here, um, and and uh, uh, certainly uh, I've been very impressed uh, coming to the coming to the genetic side of the house um, only more recently, uh, having started uh, my research career as a, as a physiologist, uh, that I've come to appreciate the importance of the genetic pathways in. Setting the stage and, and setting up conditions in which activity can then exert its effects. Uh, and, and one point that I think is worth emphasizing is that um, uh, when we've been able to perturb activity in a variety of different ways, by overexpression of ion channels, by the addition of drugs, um, we find that we can change the numbers of neurons that produce a particular transmitter by typically something on the order of plus minus 50%. So it's not the case that activity can suddenly make every neuron in the CNS cholinergic or make every neuron GABAergic. Uh, the changes are, are really, you know, at this more modest level. Now, in terms of function, that could still be a tr have a tremendous impact. You know, plus minus 50% on, on a population could be quite significant in terms of its behavioral readout. Um, but it's not a wholesale conversion of the entire nervous system. Like I said, it may be a partnership. I, I think Electrical that's... Electrical activity plus factor X can drive all neurons into... I, I think the that's the way we're, we're seeing it. Uh, also, which which yeah. then has a recursive influence. That's right. That's what no. I was going to say. It yeah. causes the loop right. that yeah. we think of the electrical activity as a piece of the cell's phenotype, and, and it is, yes. but then that might reinforce the phenotype. Yes, yes. And yes. stabilize it. Yes. And, and here, this makes sense, uh, because... One knows that um, there, are, certainly it's argued that there are not enough genes in the genome to be able to precisely specify every event associated with the development and mature function of the nervous system, much less the rest of the body. And so what that means is that genes have to be turned on and turned off, 
and then turn on again and turned off, and then turn on again and turned off again at various points during development. And how's that going to be done? Well, we could imagine writing a genetic program that would do all that. Again, I'm not sure we have enough DNA uh, to, to be able to accomplish that, but nicely, if we have activity which can be influenced by the local environment within the, within the developing nervous system and in the mature nervous system, then we can have this, this loop that you were just talking about that, that circles around, so activity turns on gene expression, which then turns on different forms of activity, which then turns on different forms of gene expression. And one cycles around this loop in an iterated fashion throughout development and on to later life. But, uh, I mean, this, uh, uh, the question that I have is how reliable this turning on and off of genes is. And um, from what I understand from your work, uh, when you look at some of these cells in this uh, neural tube, in the centipus, you have calcium spikes once every hour or a few per hour. And then the transition, the development is in, in a matter of hours. So you will have only a hundred of these events that will determine the fate of, of, of these cells. So then that, all, that tells me, I guess, that, that it's a pretty reliable I guess, a very deterministic or very robust uh, signal, right? I mean, you just need a few of these spikes uh, being generated to, to tell a neuron to switch. Yes, I mean, yes. Fidel, this, is a, this brings up a great point because uh, we see the world just as you see it, uh, and, and the challenge then is to figure out what it is about the cell type-specific pattern of these calcium transients. These calcium transients, again, produced by the calcium action potentials that trigger calcium-induced calcium release and uh, 10 seconds in duration, so long duration relative to a millisecond sort of time frame of an action potential in a, in a mature cell, uh, and, and raising calcium by an order of magnitude from 10 to the minus 7th to 10 to the minus 6th molar, so it's an appreciable rise in intracellular calcium. What is it about the pattern that leads to the expression of GABA in one case or 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 glycine in another case. What what is it about that pattern? And initially, um, you know, sort of a knee-jerk uh, kind of instinct, perhaps uh, we thought, well, it's probably a frequency code. And so, and when, when I talk about this work, I often present the the the, the patterns as free, different frequencies for each of these different classes of neurons that we've examined. But in the end, when you start looking in detail at the pattern, you see that there's some bursts, and then there's some, some singlets, and then there's a long quiet period, and then there are bursts again. You, you have to wonder, gee, is this something like spike timing? Uh, is, is there some you know, special coding here that is really not revealed by, by just cranking the numbers and taking total number over total time and calculating a, a, a frequency? And so we, we have a lot of work to, to do to figure that out. We're, we're kind of hoping that a way to get into that problem will be to um, uh, identify, uh, uh, and we hear the TLX3 story uh, might be a useful marker for us, try to identify what different patterns of activity are necessary to lead to the phosphorylation, say, of the CGIN transcription factor. Uh, and do you need a particular burst cluster of calcium spikes to do this, or is it actually more effective if you drive a series of spaced single Spikes over a period of time. But um, I have a, a, a question about the um, the specifics here. So you have your calcium spike, but you can have normal spiking activity in these cells riding on top of the calcium spike. 
No, here I'm talking just about the, about the normal pattern of calcium spikes. Uh-huh. We we can, I mean, if you let the cells go normally, which uh-huh. you, we start by just accumulating a baseline of activity, identify a population of cells, sensory neurons, different populations of interneurons. They, they will generate a, volt, uh, a voltage-related calcium spike, and then a calcium-induced calcium release event. That's right. Free. Uh-huh. But then can you have multiple uh, calcium spikes during the 10-second the duration? Uh, no, no. The the uh, each calcium spike is the result of a single calcium dependent action potential. Okay. That then and, and and so the long part of that ten seconds, the bulk of that time is due to calcium induced calcium release. And mm-hmm. we can show that by by eliminating the calcium induced calcium release. You can either deplete the stores with ryanidine or with thapsogargan, right. and under those conditions, you don't see a, you still see a calcium transient, but it's a brief. Uh, a 100-millisecond event. I mean, it's a very brief... And within, uh, within each cell, the, the wave of calcium-induced cancer release is, is throughout the, the entire cell? Well, or, I, I love you. I love you, Fidel. That's a challenging question. We try, we've tried to answer that question. Uh, and the, and uh, the problem is that the cells are too fast for us. Uh, the cells are generating these calcium-dependent action potentials, uh, and we don't know whether they're generated in the cell body and they propagate out the axon, or whether they're generated in the axon and propagate into the cell body. In many cases, they're they're present prior to axon outgrowth. At the, at the time when they first appear, axonogenesis has not yet begun. But the, this 10-hour period during which the calcium spikes are produced is one during which axons largely find their way out and reach their their mm-hmm. ultimate targets. And and uh, we thought we'd be clever about this, so we would take neurons and we'd grow them in culture under conditions in which the axon was growing in a straight line. Then we'd use the line scan mm-hmm. feature of the confocal to be able to scan along the, uh, the the cell body out the axon. We'd be able to find out where the action potential first arose. Well, the action potential was propagating too rapidly. Our line scan was going as fast as this biorad could go. Couldn't keep. Couldn't go faster than the action potential. So we don't know where they're triggered. Uh, but the fact that they're produced by action potentials, of course, and that action potentials are pretty rapidly propagated, um, suggests that maybe from a, from, a, from a cell biology point of view, from the point of view of what the cell experiences, they're effectively you know, instantaneous, uh, suggested in quotes here. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, uh, so that remains a very interesting question. Mm-hmm. Try, to, try to get at that. Uh, but... Uh, uh, a related issue here that, that comes up is the is what we call the stability question. Uh, and when you when you look at activity dependent changes, um, uh, one question that that uh, I get asked often is what is the stability of these changes in neurotransmitter? And um, initially, uh, uh, I thought that that was going to be quite an important question to answer, and that we would want to find some way of Make a perturbation in the embryo, and then going and looking in the adult nervous system. Uh, Just conceptually, that becomes a very challenging issue for the Xenopus amphibian model, because the the frogs have a lifestyle that we can we all remember when we think about it, which is that they, as embryos and larvae, they have one nervous system, and then when they go through metamorphosis, uh, the surge of thyroxin there that promotes metamorphosis leads to the death of a lot of that first wave of neurons and the. And the, and the birth of a big second wave of neurons that generate the nervous system for the mature animal. And so it's not possible to produce changes in the embryonic nervous system and then follow them out into the adult. One wants to move to a different model, maybe the mouse, to ask the, ask the question there. But more recently, we've begun to think that that's not, not, not expected. And, and here, the observation comes from these recent experiments looking at the way in which changes in the ambient light exposure of the animal to 
uh, a bright sunny day or a, a dark cupboard in the lab can change the uh, dopaminergic the number of dopaminergic neurons in the brain. Mm-hmm. And here it's possible to to uh, in, in the in the bright light to increase the number of neurons, put the animal back in the dark, and, and decrease the number of neurons, and then put the animal back in the light and increase the number of neurons. And you can march the animal back and forth, and you can sacrifice the animal at any particular time during this trajectory. And what, what you find is that the, the nervous system is reflecting the recent experience uh, of light exposure, either in the light or in the dark. And in the end, that's probably what, what one wants about the nervous system. The nervous system is, is supposed to change in response to experience. That's the job of the nervous system. Uh, it's supposed to change the, the synaptic weights, as, as you pointed out in our introduction, uh, and it's, it, it maybe also change the transmitter complement in the neurons as a response of the changing environment. So, um, really, what one probably wants to see is not that the, the effects are stable, but in fact that they're unstable; that they will change in response to different uh, exposure to different environments. But is it there a point at which infinite flexibility becomes needlessly expensive? I mean, it, it confers a great advantage evolutionarily in, in terms of an organism's yeah. survival, but uh, there's got to be a limit to that. I, I, there must be. There must be. And, and the question is, you know, where where has nature drawn the line effectively in terms of uh, limiting that? <laughs> One thing that <clears throat> that uh, that David Adelsi's predicted that then turned turned out to be true was that the, uh, when animals are exposed to light for a sustained period of time, for two hours, <laughs> recruiting then this larger number of dopaminergic neurons, that um, that ought to uh, lead to uh, an acceleration of the change in their s- skin pigmentation, the change in their camouflage, um, in response to light, and, and the response ought to be larger, <laughs> because now we've got that, those additional dopaminergic neurons converging on the pathways that regulate skin pigmentation. And sure enough, that turned out to be the case. Uh, um, and so, the, in terms of animals uh, having a selective advantage, being able to uh, change their coloration more more quickly uh, and escape the crow that wanted to come down and feast on the young frog larvae for lunch, um, this could be an evolutionary benefit. Uh, but your question is, is an interesting one. It provokes the, the issue of whether these reserve pools of neurons are just restricted, for example, perhaps just to modulators like dopamine and serotonin and a few of our other uh, favorite modulators, or whether it's a, a broader uh, issue that's found in uh, appearing in, in many different neuron populations. Uh, and um, time will tell as we look, look further at these questions. But there you have a, like a very speculative question. So it seems also from your work that these changes are, as you mentioned with the, with the larvae, are fast. So they follow the exposure to light relatively fast and then they recover or they go to basal state when you put them in the dark. So wouldn't that be like a um, reason to believe that if an animal or human has a is slower to adapt. That could be a basis, for example, for autism or for schizophrenic behavior, right? When changes in the past keep affecting you for a very long period of time, it's more difficult for the animal to adapt. And Well, I mean, I'm just yes, speculating. Yes, I'm, I'm not yes. asking you to answer. No, no, no. It's an, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting question. And here, I mean, how could we tackle this uh, experimentally? 
uh, we'd want to find a good animal model for autism or schizophrenia and then ask whether this kind of plasticity of transmitter switching is compromised in that animal model. Like slower. Like slower, uh-huh. exactly, exactly. And, and I think that would be a very interesting question. Uh, increasingly, there, there are some uh, very interesting models now for very, the autism spectrum disorders and different members of the, that spectrum and for uh, schizophrenia. And so I think that would be a very intriguing issue to, to try to address. Um, the, uh, uh, this, this, the speed of this plasticity is intriguing because one, think, one, one knows about and one, one remembers elegant work showing that one can have axonal sprouting and one can have dendritic uh, sprouting or, and retraction, of course, and going in the other direction for, in each case. Um, uh, but typically, the time scales for those kinds of morphological changes are seem to be, uh, from what we know so far, a little longer than the time scales for this transmitter switching process. Um, and it's, I think, in the end, it's going to be important to identify for the nervous system uh, changes in, uh, in in its function, uh, so plasticity, at a whole range of different time scales. Things that work on the short time scale, on the intermediate time scale, on the long time scale, on the super long time scale. Uh, to deal with the different uh, challenges that the nervous system faces. Um, so it's uh, the, the search continues. Jezel uh, has this homeodomain transcription code yes. for specifying different neuronal subtypes in, yes. in the spinal cord. So you alluded to, uh, you mentioned that there could be a frequency code, you know, burst, burst, but that, that could uh, coordinate the uh, homeodomain uh, transcriptional code. Is, mm-hmm. is that... Uh, I think it's a very I think it's a very interesting question, Gary. Mm-hmm. And, and and here um, I, I would offer sort of a philosophical comment about progress in science. Um, as we all know we, everybody recognizes that um, the use of particular tools uh, facilitates experimental progress, and, and with new tools one makes rapid new progress in, in that particular domain. And I, I believe it's the case that the tools of molecular biology advanced very quickly in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, and allowed us to appreciate, and Tom was front and center uh, with, uh, with a lot of other great people, in demonstrating the importance of transcriptional cascades for segmentation, for, for neural differentiation, you know, just a host of different things. And it's not, it's not all invertebrates. There's some fantastic work in the, in the fly, of course. And um, uh, so that, that one gets an understanding of how that can work. Um, and one sort of gets the impression as that unfolds that that's it, that there's no need for anything else because one knocks out genes, one knocks in genes, and one gets the consequences that one expects. Um, but if one thinks about it for a little longer, one can, can imagine that uh, if there is such a thing as activity involved in this process, that... The, the loop that we were talking about earlier, in which activity is affecting gene expression and gene expression is affecting activity, and we've got this kind of dog chasing its tail situation, that activity could be embedded in that, in that pathway uh, and could be actually important in that pathway. And, and the experiments that Tom and, and others have done would not reveal that. And, and so the, here one comes back and remembers that the, the process of developing a technology confocal microscopy, multi-photon uh, confocal microscopy, um, the kinds of, of perturbation experiments that allow one to manipulate activity, those developed 
more recently than the techniques, the powerful techniques that allowed us to do the molecular biology. But now there's catch-up time. And, and now we're beginning to appreciate that in certain pathways, we don't know how many of them yet, but in certain pathways, oh boy, activity is right in there. I mean, it is a partnership. You know, they're going forward together. And, and it, it raises the question of whether or not in other pathways, such as the, uh, the role of the Hox genes, whether or not activity plays a role there as well. I don't know of another way to find out except to go and look. Um, and uh, we, we can talk about different ways to do that, um, just, just uh, using imaging techniques to, to look at the tissues and ask whether or not one detects activity. That's, all, that's usually uh, you know, it's a good starting point. And then after that, can we do perturbation experiments to perturb activity and then use the, the, the readout of gene expression to ask whether activity is altering gene expression? That, that's a nice next step. And uh, it'll be interesting. You know, I think... Uh, Maybe you'll be the one to do it, Gary. Uh, but I think uh, if th these are cool experiments to get after. Who? <laughs> That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Nick Spitzer, for joining us. It's been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Thank you.